29. The number of acres that could potentially be revitalized under the proposed special flushing waterfront district. The mixed-use project would bring together several parcels of underutilized land to add 3 million square feet of housing, hotel, retail, and office space, in addition to remediating Flushing Creek and creating waterfront access and park space. While the project has been approved by the City Planning Commission and appears to have the support of its councilmen, it's not without its critics. In our third conversation on land use and zoning, we move from Brooklyn to Queens and unpack the project with a member of the development team and then with a vocal critic, both of whom have deep roots in the community. Who will persuade you? Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. We're excited for another episode here on land use and development and jobs and housing and some of the key issues we've been digging into in recent episodes. If you've missed some of those recent episodes, do find them. We talked about the industry city rezoning proposal. We talked about the Gowanus rezoning plan that's coming together in a couple of great recent episodes of important discussions. And we're continuing on that theme here today, taking us to Flushing to Queens. Enough with Brooklyn. Enough uh, with that. Let's get to Queens here. Um, and so we're happy today to discuss uh, a plan that is really coming down to the wire here now for decision making in the city council. And the special Flushing waterfront district has proved to be a bit controversial, a bit contentious, but we're going to dig into it on today's episode with a couple of great guests. And we're happy to be joined first by Helen Lee, who is the Executive Vice President of FNT Group. Helen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So before we dig into all the details of the Special Flushing Waterfront District, uh, just a little bit about you and your background and, and what your sort of broader role is here in this project. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, FNT was actually founded uh, three decades ago. And, um, you know, it's, I, it's, it's a real immigrant story. And, uh, you know, look, my father immigrated here from Taiwan when he was in his 30s. Um, you know, I myself as an immigrant, I wasn't born in this country. Um, you know, I came when I was six. And, uh, you know, we settled in Queens. Um, so I'm a Queens girl, it's Ruins Row. And, uh, you know, one of the areas that he, he came with literally nothing in his pocket. And, um, you know, it started off as like a construction firm doing very, very small projects. And, you know, he had a vision for Flushing. And the reason why he chose Flushing was because at that time it was the Asian, you know, um, immigrant enclave, right? You know, he didn't speak the language, neither did I. And, you know, that's where it kind of started. So, you know, we have a deep love for Flushing. I mean, we really consider this to be you know, our community and we want to see, you know, it move forward and hence the special Flushing Waterfront District. Mm -hmm. and, and what do you, what is your role in the, in the project? other than being a, a spokesperson here on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks. Well, um, I mean, my day-to-day -day job is to oversee the development activity um, of the company. Uh, the Special Flushing Waterfront District is not the only project we're working on. We're working on other things. Um, but mostly in Flushing, you know, we're very, very focused on doing transformative projects and usually mixed use. And, um, you know, I think that people often have short memories about what Flushing was like, even as short as 10 years ago. I mean, it's really come a long way. And you know, I like to think that, you know, um, our family had a lot to do with that, right? Just kind of bringing some positive change to the neighborhood, um, you know, attracting private and public investment as well. All right, so let's dig into the overview of the, of the special Flushing Waterfront District plan. Uh, someone who's not familiar with it, let's say, uh, you're talking with them, uh, you have sort of, you know, that kind of minute to tell them, here's the, here's the deal, here's what this is about, and obviously we'll get into more details, but, you know, in sort of the broad overview, how do you describe it? Well, the broad overview is that, you know, look, it's, uh, I, I think before we get into the broad overview, we have to really look at the history of how the special district came about, right? Because remember, 100 years ago, Flushing Creek was a very vibrant boating community. It was, it was, it was, there was people, there were people like doing, you know, boating, doing lots of waterfront activities. Then it fell into 
little, um, you know, dilapidation. And, um, you know, even back in 1993, there was a plan, uh, I think it was called the Flushing Downtown, uh, you know, plan or something. And, you know, back then, the, the, the vision was to try to revitalize this waterfront. So think back to 20... So Helen, just take a second. I think a lot of people don't even know what we're talking about or what it looks like now, right? Oh. So give people a sense of what is there now. Okay, right. It's it's vacant. It's uh, yeah. dilapidated. There's nothing on it. Maybe you know a couple of raccoons, feral cats, and, and some industrial space, which some is industrial spaces that you know are underutilized. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, look, it's been sitting there vacant for for many many years. And so uh, the city agencies wanted to do something about it. Um, you know, I think it's also important to note that there's three separate owners, actually, in fact, four, if you count U-Haul on this parcel of land, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when this whole thing happened, uh, you know, there was the downtown Flushing plan. Then eventually, you know, there was the um, Flushing West plan. I think you guys are all familiar with that, where, um, you know, that was spearheaded by the mayor's office. That ultimately didn't go through, but you know what happened after that was that the LDC had applied for a BOA grant because we didn't want that study to just sit there collecting dust as a coffee table book, right? Um, and uh, ultimately, the city councilman Peter Koo, and you know, along with other you know city agencies, including the Department of City Planning and the community, came to us, three separate owners and said, hey, look, you know, Flesh and West didn't go through, but we still want to make, you know, the waterfront happen. You know, would you be interested in collaborating together to make, you know, what is now known as the special Flesh and Waterfront District? So I think that's quite exciting. And so, you know, we actually did two other property owners already had approved building permits. They were ready to go. So they stopped everything that they were doing and um, you know, decided to join this effort. And we, you know, we just wanted to do the best for the community, come up with the best design, um, come up with like the highest and best use for the waterfront. And explain what could go up there now as of right versus what the plan is for the district. Well, I think the easiest way for the public to really understand it is that, you know, like the as of right scenario is really the easy way out. Right. If everybody's familiar with Skyview, it's basically that we can do a retail podium with towers on top and then we can have three or four of them along the waterfront. Now, when you have the special flushing waterfront district, right, and this is after years of planning with city planning, you know, who knows what's the best practices for urban planning and design, we have to create a road network. We have to, you know, widen the waterfront from 20 feet to 40 feet, you know, basically doubling the total amount of open spaces. Um, you know, we have to do like upland connections, we have to create visual corridors, um, and basically activated public realm. I mean, just think it's like an extension of downtown Flushing, but down to the waterfront. So it becomes more accessible. If you go to Skyview right now, there's actually uh, a promenade in the back of the building, but nobody really knows about it because it's so hard to get there. So the special waterfront district, you know, would really allow people to easily walk down to the waterfront and enjoy, um, you know, the creek. And, and what do you project in terms of jobs, housing, um, you know, square footage of public space? I mean, right. what, are the, what are some of the numbers around this? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so the total amount of open spaces is 6.6 uh, .6 acres, I believe. So, which more than doubles what the uh, as of right scenario would be. Um, you know, we're estimating north of 3,600 jobs, permanent jobs for the community. Um, and in terms of the tax base, we are estimating, this is, you know, by like an economist, um, you know, that's doing the projections for us. It's $165 million annually, um, half of which is comprised of property taxes. And I mean, that would immediately go into the city's coffers. And I just think that in today's, the city's economic climate, um, the fact that it's pretty much, you know, run out of money because of the pandemic, unfortunately, um, I can't think of anything better for the city and for the local community than for this project to be voted through. And so some of the key, um, pillars in terms of the activity there, it would be, um, there's apartments, 
hotels, retail. Can you describe a little bit of that, what that balance and what those details look like? Um, yeah, sure. I, I think um, right now there's residential towers, there's you know, hotel towers, um, there is some retail at the pedestrian level. And uh, I think there's a couple of office towers. It's quite a lot of, you know, I, I'm not too familiar with the other two projects, what they're doing, mm. but you know, it's like a good mix of all the different food groups of real estate. Mm. And then the important thing is that, you know, on the Northern parcel where there is an zoning, um, there will be affordable housing created for the community. Right, so that's sort of one of the, one of the interesting parts of this is that a lot of it as you and Maria sort of got out of a couple minutes ago, a lot of it could be done as of right. As you said, there was there was a lot already in the works and then sort of, uh, you know, people in government came around and, and tried to uh, bring people together for this for this bigger project. Um, and, and so there is more of a smaller piece of it that is the, the potentially up zone parcel that then would include some affordable housing under the city's mandatory inclusionary housing program, right? Correct. Um, as this process has sort of unfolded, um, is, is the city and the, and the city leadership and council member Koo and the city uh, department of city planning are, is it still sort of a, a collective that's, that's pushing this ahead or, or what, what's sort of, the state of play here in terms of, you know, this is now at the city council, the city planning commission approved it. Um, you know, there's, there's the clock is ticking in the Euler process. Um, but how do you sort of describe where things are at in terms of that, that coalition that sort of got together to move this ahead? I mean, I think it's really important to reiterate that the community wants this, you know, I know that there is a small minority that is vocally expressing their opposition to the project, but, you know, the community board had passed this overwhelmingly, you know, so did city planning. Councilman Peter Coe asked us basically to do this project, you know, because Flesh and Wesley didn't get passed. And it's a good project with very good fundamentally, uh, you know, positive urban design and planning, you know, uh, aspects to it, right? So, um, Right now, yes, like the clock is ticking, but we're confident that, you know, we'll have victory, a, a, a good one for the city, I think, and, you know, not another development project that gets killed. Has, um, the, has, has the city, and I guess that means the de Blasio administration in this respect, have they sort of um, left you a little bit in terms of trying to get this to the finish line or or did you never really sort of count on them you know they helped with sort of bringing the planning together but you weren't necessarily counting on them politically or I, i'm i'm not quite sure of where you know that sort of aspect of trying to get this to the finish line is because as you said there is you know sort of a vocal group of, of folks opposing they've gotten some momentum from some labor unions and some city council members that are not the local member peter Koo, as you said um but it did the city sort of back away on this or or were you never really counting on their political support no i think the city council wants to make it work right you know in all of our meetings with them you know they've expressed that like, look, you know, you have to work with the unions, which we are, by the way, you know, we're in active discussions with them. I think, look, everybody just wants to make it work. Nobody can deal with another failed project. And by the way, like, if this doesn't go through, unfortunately, we would just have to go with the as a right project. And all the community benefits that I've just talked about, affordable housing, 20,000 square feet of community spaces, workforce training, child mentoring after school programs, you know, a $2 million fund for the business improvement district, um, you know, all that open space children's playground along the waterfront, all of that goes away. So let's just like really like pause for a moment and really think about that. So, um, you know, so I think the, the city council does want to make it work, you know, all working really hard. I mean, literally like night and day, this right. is what we're focused on right now. Just say a little bit more on talking with the labor unions, because that does seem to be a big sticking point. This is the hotel trades and um, the building service workers, is that those are the two main unions that, that want to figure out a deal, correct? Correct, yes. Yeah, and, and the gist of, of some of that, you feel like those discussions are fruitful or, or that, you know, that, that there will uh, be negotiations, you know, will get somewhere? 
I think so. I mean, I think that, you know, especially for building labor, um, you know, Union 32 BJ, I mean, we're essentially rolling out the red carpet for them. So we want to make it work. Um, now, in terms of the hotel trades council, it's a little bit tricky there, to be honest, because we don't know where the hotel industry is going to be. I mean, literally, I mean, it's, there's no tourism right now in New York mm -hmm. City. So, um, you know, that's kind of where we are right now, but we are having active discussions, um, especially with 32BJ. So one of the sort of themes we're exploring in these conversations we're having on zoning and land use is the, the concept of community and who speaks for the community, who is the community behind the project, um, and how does one engage with that community sort of thoughtfully and productively? Now, you said earlier, you know, the community supports this, so I have a couple questions here. Sure. How do you know, right? Like, the most basic question is, how do you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, first, the community board had passed it, right? And, you know, secondly, we had over 350 letters of support that were written in support of this project. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't be part of a community if you've been here, I, you know, working here, literally pretty much like uh, for the last two, three decades and not be part of it, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, for people to say that we're not, we're not part of the community, I think that's kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, and also just speaking to everybody, all the local community organizations, I mean, they do want to see this happen. And, you know, unfortunately, it's just that sometimes, you know, like the everyday person doesn't really know what's going on, you know, where like uh, the, the project is. And so when we explain to them, they're just like, what? Why would anybody protest? You know, it's basically a free and public waterfront for the community to use and all of the comprehensive package of community benefits that come along with it. They, they just simply don't understand it. And, so, what, and sort of formally, what kind of community engagement did you have? And, you know, how long did that take? What did that look like? Give us a little bit of flavor around that and some of your outreach to these local groups and organizations. Yeah, sure. You know, in fact, a lot of that was done, you know, during the BOA study and, um, you know, during the Flesh and West, um, you know, when the whole process was happening. I mean, there were, you know, dozens of like charrettes and, you know, workshops, meetings um, with elected officials and with Department of City Planning. And like those included the people who currently oppose us now, in fact. So to say that there's no community participation is a bit strange because they were at the table the whole entire time. Mm -hmm. And so how do you characterize their major sticking point or what has not been resolved that allows them to continue to um, protest the project? I mean, look, you know, I, as a former urban planner myself, believe it or not, right, I am empathetic to, you know, what they're saying, except that I think that there's a lot of misinformation out there. Right. Um, I think, you know, one of the criticisms from the opposition is that there's not enough affordable housing, right? Because the optics don't look good. There's 1700 market condos and then, you know, only 90 units. But the argument that I would make there is that this is private land. This was never intended to be a complete rezoning. We're not getting additional density or bulk in 90% of the parcels that we're talking about, right? So the only area where we're getting the additional upzoning because we're changing the use from heavy manufacturing to mixed use to residential is basically only 10% of the project. Mm -hmm. So that was how it was sort of sold to us years ago. And that's why we participated in the special district, right? Okay, you know, we get the additional density then, you know, in exchange, we provide 30% affordable housing. Now, if the overall conundrum, right? is the affordability crisis and the housing crisis in the city, then let's talk about, you know, how to address that on public land. You know, Flesh and Commons was actually one of our projects. You know, we did the affordable housing. I mean, the affordable housing, we weren't a developer there because, you know, there was a affordable housing developer that did that portion of the project, but that was the first thing that was delivered as part of that project. So, and one of Flushing actually was another affordable housing project that was 100%. That's on public land. There's actually sites in downtown Flushing where, you know, there's nonprofits that own them. They got it for a, a discounted price in the city that have laid there vacant for years 
There's 62 acres across the creek at Willits Point, all public land. So why isn't the affordable housing been being built in all these different areas? I'm not quite sure. And like, I think one of the misinformation, you know, that's out there is that this is a quote unquote developer land grab. I mean, unfortunately that's not true because this is private land and we've owned it for years and years. So um, I think we have to look at it holistically, but going back to what I was saying before, the special district was never intended to solve the affordable housing crisis, right? It, it, you know, this was pre-pandemic, okay, I get it. You know, now, like I, I've said, you know, let's look at the public you know, land sites right, and address that there. But it was always supposed to be, okay, how do we, because we're not getting the upzoning, right, for the majority of the site, how do we actually make this project really great for the community? Let's double the open spaces. Let's do the workforce training, right? Targeted towards Latimer Gardens and plant houses, targeted towards the nice buildings, the people who really, really need it, right? Let's do the road network to relieve the traffic congestion um, that's happening in Flushing, uh, in downtown Flushing. Let's, um, you know, do the visual uh, corridors, bring in more light and air, you know, do an activated public realm. Let's do the children's playgrounds. Let's do all those wonderful things for the community. Um, so, you know, I can get this through. I think I think you just got and we're we're in our last couple of minutes here and we appreciate your time. I think um, you know I think you just got at the at you know what is if not the top you know the, one of the top two or three uh, concerns about the project, which is about affordability, gentrification, displacement, and and I think I think you just gave your answer there without us really having to dig in into that with you. And and that's that's interesting. And we'll we'll pose that um, to our second guest who you know has concerns about the project. Um, I guess finally for me and, and Maria might have one more question before we say goodbye, but, um, you know, basically, you know, the, the, the biggest things, you know, you sort of need here to get us to the finish line that we've gotten at is council member Koo, uh, you know, to sort of be a, a champion on this and work with his colleagues and get the council speaker to, you know, hear him and, and rally the, the troops, so to speak, in the council. Do you feel at this point that council member Koo is a champion for the project, you know, what's your sort of political uh, final thought here on the politics of it? I mean, absolutely. I mean, this is his legacy. You know, this is his legacy. It's it's a legacy for Flushing. Like, I, I just want everybody to know that this is literally the last opportunity. It's not like if this doesn't get through, it's not like you can move down a couple blocks and do like a waterfront there, right? We will go as of right, then you'll have hideous super blocks. Not streets along the waterfront and uh and basically nobody would really walk down there so you know it's really the last frontier of Flushing, and i think councilman ku absolutely understands that he knows what's good for um the community in this respect and i mean i think he's been very supportive and a champion of it on the issue of gentrification um you know today i haven't really seen any real data about displacement, which I think was one of the things that the opposition is bringing up. And, you know, look, I, I, I think it's fundamental supply and demand economics, right? And, you know, I look at empirical data, I've read studies where, you know, we found exactly the opposite by, you know, providing market rate housing. It's actually part of the solution to solve the affordability issue in the city, and it needs to play an important role. I mean, there was a study that shows that for every 10% increase in housing stock within 500 feet, residential rents actually decrease by 1%. So, you know, adding new supply to the housing actually relieves pressure on, you know, affordability and, you know, potential displacement. So, you know, I mean, if you look at New York City and San Francisco, you're looking at like two of the most highly regulated housing markets in the country. And I think that's actually contributed to the rising prices throughout the city. So by adding more stock, I don't see like how that's a bad thing. So um, I think before we get into the argument about how there's gentrification and displacement and all that, you know, we have to really look at the empirical data. And also personally, I don't think that gentrification necessarily needs to be entirely a bad word. There's a lot of benefits that come with that. You know, there's been studies shown that you get higher credit scores, you know, higher levels of education, higher incomes, you know, better institutional resources like hospitals and libraries, you know, I mean, it just sort of like lifts everything up a little bit, right? But of course, like we really do need to pay attention to the people who, 
really do need the affordable housing as well. And that's what I was saying before about addressing that through the public land sites. Okay. My last question is actually about the environmental kind of aspect of this project um, and the creek. And so whose responsibility will it be to do the remediation on the creek? Um, is that a joint project? Is the city doing that? Are you guys taking that on? So well, we would, we would take all on all of the remediation for the land. Again, there's no public subsidy that's given to us for this. So again, private land, no public subsidy. We remediate off the land. There'll be zero overland or groundwater pollutants uh, migrating into the creek. I think one of the other pieces of misinformation that's out there is that, you know, people seem to think that we're going to be polluting um, the creek with the CSO effluent. And, you know, because other sites are doing the same, but we're not. Like the systems that we're designing, you know, will not allow that to happen. And uh, we'll be doing a lot of different techniques such as permeable pavers, green roofs, oyster beds, and seagrass, you know, and et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. to, um, you know, make sure that this is all done environmentally correctly. Right. And all that is best practice now, so. Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. Well, Ellen Lee is Executive Vice President of F&T Group. We appreciate the time. The issue, of course, is the Special Flushing Waterfront District, and, uh, and we will be looking at the next steps of this project and continuing the conversation here with our next guest and also uh, going forward until this gets to a resolution. So, Ellen Lee, thank you so much for the time, and, uh, and good luck. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. It's been fun. And to continue our discussion of the special Flushing Waterfront District plan, we are pleased to be joined now by John Cho, who is the executive director of the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce. He's also a recently announced candidate for city council in the district to replace term limited council member Peter Koo. And John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Really appreciate it. Uh, so just a quick intro. I just I just said uh, that you're the executive director of the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce and and now running for city council in next year's election. But anything else um, you know people should should know about you and your background and sort of your your roots in the area. I am also a member of Flushing Meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, uh, which is the oldest religious organization in Flushing. Our meeting house uh, uh, is the oldest house of worship in New York and Quakers have been worshiping there for more than 300 years. Um, currently during the pandemic, we are worshiping virtually over Zoom. Um, I'm also a founding member of the Flushing Interfaith Council, which is a coalition of faith organizations working to build greater understanding and solidarity throughout our community. Uh, you probably know this, but uh, in addition to our racial and ethnic diversity, we're one of the most religiously diverse communities in the entire United States, according to Scott Hansen, who's a professor who wrote a book called City of Gods. Uh, so that's another aspect of my life that you may not know about. Interesting. Very interesting. So um, someone comes up to you, uh, says, uh, Mr. Cho, you, you run the Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce. You're, you're deeply steeped in, in the area. I've heard there's some, uh, this special Flushing Waterfront District thing that's going on. How do you describe to someone in, you know, sort of the, the broad strokes, your view, how do you give an overview of what this project is all about? Sure. The special Flushing Waterfront District is only the latest example of an influx of luxury developments that are burdening our community. Uh, we have enormous community needs that have not been met, met through uh, land use and community development policies of this city. This city is facilitating developments like Special Flushing Waterfront District uh, really to cater to uh, the wealthiest elite in our community, not the vast majority. Uh, we have, I believe 60% of our population is a rent burden in, in our community. And yet uh, in the past 20 years, the city has only focused on building two affordable housing developments in Flushing. Um, whereas the vast majority of the projects that 
the city has facilitated has been luxury condo development. And uh, I believe it's one out of five vacant condos now. Um, so no one's actually living in these condos. Uh, why is a city uh, putting its uh, imprimatur and uh, stamp of approval on a development pattern that isn't helping our community? Uh, I have a lot to say, but that's how I would start the conversation with anyone who asks me, what is a special flesh and waterfront district? And if, if they ask you, okay, but what, what really would it be? I mean, what's, what's going to be built there? Uh, you obviously go into the apartments that you just sort of alluded to, the condos, uh, hotel, retail. Um, so you describe some of that, um, but then, uh, you know, you have the development team saying, well, we're also uh, building open space. We're building a new road network down to the creek. We're gonna help clean up the creek. Uh, some of that stuff sounds pretty good. There's gonna be some new jobs. Um, what's, what's your response to, to that? What the developers won't tell you is that the waterfront access is actually required by city law. This is not a charitable endeavor. They are mandated to provide public access to the waterfronts. Um, so that's not something that is um, a giveaway to the, to the community. It's not a community benefit that they are doing of their own free will. Um, the jobs that they will be providing uh, are mostly gonna be low uh, wage service jobs, replacing actually um, real uh, uh, middle-class jobs in manufacturing uh, uh, sectors that are gonna be displaced. Uh, there are um, actually companies there uh, on site right now that provide jobs that provide middle wage incomes to people in our community. Um, as for, um, you know, the open space, uh, again, uh, the developers have really manipulated the numbers in order to get away with not providing more open space to this community. In fact, um, the open space uh, that is really being provided is a very small uh, percentage of the development, actually. If you read reports from the Municipal Arts Society and other groups that have studied this in very minute detail, they will um, uh, tell you that uh, uh, the entire process in which this development has been uh, put through the EULA process is very disingenuous um, because the numbers don't add up. Well, so, you know, the developers have these parcels and can proceed with a good majority, let's say, if not almost all of these, the, their intended plans without going through ULERP, right? And without engaging in a community process. So, you know, my question, I guess, is twofold. One, you know, have, do you feel that there's been enough community engagement and sort of response to your concerns? I take it the answer is no, but I'd like to hear you expound on that a little bit. But two, isn't their proposal, even if it's, you know, kind of very little, still better than just proceeding as of right and providing no remediation of the creek no, you know, very little in terms of roadways and esplanades and public access. Sure. So um, I have a lot of context to provide to this development, you know, going back five years to Flushing West, which in, from my perspective was a far superior plan. It was uh, led by the Department of City Planning. Um, it uh, promised more than 500 units of affordable housing, real community access to the waterfront and open space, as well as other amenities that would have really benefited the community. Uh, we talked about schools, we talked about health clinics and senior centers and um, spaces that would be dedicated to small businesses uh, that are actually addressing uh, neighborhood needs. Uh, that can you can we just put, stick a pin in it? Just I just want to make sure that the audience who may not be familiar understands. So this was essentially a housing rezoning for the neighborhood that the city Department of City Planning initiated. And why did it ultimately fail? 
Right. So uh, just to answer your previous question about the community engagement process, uh, one year before certification, there was a real commitment to engage community stakeholders. I participated in many uh, forums and meetings uh, to respond to the, to the project proposal and to give feedback. Uh, that enga engagement process did not happen in this latest iteration called uh, Special Flushing Waterfront District. And it's curious because uh, the community board at that time, community board seven, actually opposed the Flushing West rezoning and as well as a council member and the mayor uh, withdrew the project. And uh, at that time, the council member said, you know, uh, the city's promising too much without actually um, uh, providing the uh, investment necessary to make this a reality. And many people agreed with him. Um, uh, it's strange though that five years later, uh, we have a far inferior proposal with far fewer affordable housing units being promised uh, without real public access to the waterfronts, um, without any type of comprehensive environmental review. Uh, all of a sudden the community board is voting in favor of it and the, and the council member who had previously opposed uh, Flushing West is now uh, gung-ho in favor of it. And I'm really puzzled why the sudden change in uh, support for this particular development. Well, I think the other thing that's important to explain though about the differences is they weren't exactly the same parcels of land, right? Like the boundaries of each of these were kind of different. Um, and part of what is, you know, in this new Southern Waterfront district, um, it, you know, I think to most people walking by, there's sort of nothing there. It's a lot of industrial space or manufacturing and the dirty creek that you drive by, right? Um, so getting to the sort of other part of that, which is why, you know, why pass up the public benefits that could at a minimum come with the private developers agreeing to clean up the creek? First of all, you know, the, the developers are saying that there are stewards of the land here. And I believe if they were true stewards, they would have worked with the Flushing West redevelopment plan to, to actually address the shortcomings and to actually provide the community benefits that the Department of City Planning uh, was, was actually proposing. Uh, in fact, uh, my understanding is that the developers uh, actively uh, resisted Flushing West and undermined it and forced the council member and the community board to uh, oppose it and ultimately it was withdrawn. Uh, now, um, the, the developers are in the, the driver's seat and they are offering something that is uh, market driven. You know, they're saying the only way that the community uh, can actually get waterfront access is if you prove this special flushing waterfront district uh, and give us all of these bonuses that we couldn't have gotten uh, if we had built as of right. Well, I say call their bluff, build as of right and see what actually happens there. I don't think they can actually build what they promised uh, 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 as they keep threatening to do um, by themselves. Uh, a lot of the permits and uh, requirements that they would need to proceed uh, as an as a right development uh, can only be um, uh, secured through the special district and that's something that Professor Tari Hum, who uh, studies this, uh, these issues in, the, in Queens College, has um, uh, studied very extensively. Um, she's gone through the permitting uh, of both the Special Flushing Waterfront District as well as the Azerite development. And she has seen a lot of discrepancies in terms of the developers saying, well, we'll just build it. Um, if you don't approve this, we'll just do whatever we want. Um, but they can't do whatever they want because some of the things that they want to do can only be done through a special district. Seems like we have a little bit of, of a high stakes uh, game, of, game of poker here because uh, in our conversation with, uh, with Helen Lee of the development team, um, you know, 
she more or less said, okay, you know, go ahead and, and call us on, on that. Uh, and, and you're saying, let's, let's call them on that. And again, whether it's, you know, whether it's a bluff or not, uh, we'll, we'll eventually perhaps see, but, um, so, so I was going to ask, you know, sort of in the end here, what's, what's your preference? And it sounds like your preference is, um, you know, let's, let's see them do the as of right project. Is there in your mind where we sit right now at the beginning of December with the clock ticking in the city council with council member Koo favorable towards the special district? Is there in your mind a compromise that works that lets this go forward? Is there... Are there concessions yeah. that the developers can make at this point to make you and other critics of the project say, all right, you know what, that is better? Yes, and we've been warning the developers for months about this. Our compromise is let's do a real environmental uh, impact statement. Both the draft EIS and the EIS, the final EIS, uh, should be part of this uh, EULA process. Uh, if you were at the city council hearing, you will see that the developers couldn't answer simple questions. Those questions could have been answered if we had actually um, gone through that environmental review process and not allowed them to bypass it. Um, the developers keep saying they're a community stewards, that they have overwhelming support uh, for this project. Why would they spend more than $1.7 million on lobbying fees, the most of any projects in the city to get uh, this project to be um, to bypass EIS requirements and to railroad it through the city council. If they truly had uh, massive community support as they claim, why are they spending so much money to bypass uh, regular uh, land use procedures and uh, requirements? I don't understand that. I want to say, first of all, that the, you know, the coverage of this this in the Gotham Gazette has been excellent, which is where I've gotten almost all my information on this very issue. But you know, the, the DCP has approved the project and approved their environmental review. Now it may not have been as expansive as you would have liked, but I think it's a little disingenuous to say there was no environmental assessment done. Yeah, I didn't say there was no environmental assessment. Um, the EAS uh, is really inadequate for a large scale project of this type. Um, I have spoken about a comprehensive environmental review. And that to me means a draft EIS and a final EIS document that the community has uh, the right to review and ask questions about to have dialogue with the developers. Um, and that, and that <laughs> just to be clear, you know, that's not gonna happen in this ULERP, right? So, you know, to go back to sort of my question, which was, is there a way to, in your mind, to get to yes here by this, where this clock is ticking in this ULERP, the answer is then no, or, you know, putting, putting an EIS that, you know, you want to see aside, are there other things if the development team, you know, within reason, if the development team came and said, all right, we have a deal with 32BJ, we have a deal with the Hotel Trades Council, we are going to make some adjustments on making more of the units affordable housing. Uh, you know, are there things like that that you see as a get to yes, or or is there not a deal here in your mind? Um, you know that. that would be yeah, uh, my position is that the special flush and waterfront district is the latest in a pattern of development that the city is responsible for, and so this is not subject to any kind of political deal the city has to um, go back to the drawing board and work with the community to come up with a comprehensive community-based plan for not only this land, but uh, the surrounding areas in Flushing. And that's the, the key difference between the EAS and an EIS. An EIS actually looks at the, uh, the impact throughout the neighborhood, throughout the community of um, not just the environmental uh, issues, but also the economic impact, the social impact. Um, why, why isn't the city willing to sit down with us and, and have that dialogue? Uh, we, uh, myself and other people in the community have been uh, demanding and we've actually uh, sued the city uh, as part of a lawsuit to say, um, you are not doing this properly. Uh, go back to the drawing board and start all over again. 
So, you know, there's been a lot of change in Flushing in the last, I don't know, since I used to take the bus to go to Queens College, right? I don't know, I'm not gonna tell you how many years that's been, but um, there's been a tremendous amount of change, right? And it's happened very rapidly. And, you know, we have seen increasingly, not only in Flushing, but in other places of the city, um, a lot of communities asking for a pause on some of these projects. One idea that's been floated is the notion of having some sort of citywide comprehensive or strategic plan with some goals, which would then allow these projects to, not this particular project, but projects like this to proceed sort of as of right if they meet these goals. What do you think of an idea like that? I wholeheartedly support that idea. And in fact, um, ben mentioned that I am planning to run for the city council. One of the things that I would be committed to doing as a council member is to issue a moratorium on large scale luxury developments until we have a comprehensive community planning process in place. And, you know, one of the things when we, when we raised this, some of these issues with Helen Lee of the uh, F&T group and the development team, she said, you know, we have all this as of right uh, ability to, to build a lot of this. I understand your arguments and Professor Hum's arguments um, about some of that, and we, we won't be able to hash that out here. So let's just take that aside for a second. She said, you know, we have this ability, but also people want to talk about gentrification. People want to talk about displacement, affordable housing. Why isn't the city moving ahead with more affordable housing in the Flushing area when there are, you know, there's city-owned land, there's other places to negotiate, there's a lot that could be done in the larger area. This is much more, you know, a private development and the city has a lot more capability. What's, what's your sort of response to that? I mean, is that, where, is that where you guys agree a bit? Yeah, like I said, you know, um, the developers are free to build on their property as of right. And so if they had the financing in place, they should go ahead. We as a city should not uh, rubber stamp or put our imprimatur of support or approval on a project that has no bearing on addressing the issues that you just raised. Um, right. So, really sorry, sorry. Let me just rephrase. I'm, I apologize. So I guess I guess the point, the question there really is, if especially if the de Blasio administration is is supportive of the special flushing waterfront district, should the city be coming in here to flushing? with other plans to address some of these issues in the places that the city has more control? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, there'd be a lot more support for private development on the waterfront if it was actually part of a larger plan and the city was committed to uh, investing resources to build more affordable housing schools and other things that the community has been asking for. Um, I think uh, I, I, to try to put, Put yourself in our position. We have needs that are not being addressed by the city. The city is asking us as a community, I sit on the community board um, to approve this project. Why should we support a project that isn't addressing the needs that we have articulated to, to uh, the mayor and the city council? It doesn't make sense for us to support this project when um, there's no investment or resources that the city is committing to address the issues that we have raised. And your argument about Councilmember Ku's seeming support for the project, about people who su support it, uh, you know, at a city council hearing, um, is that they're, what, not familiar enough with the real details and the real outcome? They're too, um, you know, they're sort of too entranced by the idea that there's going to be new development and new jobs. What's the... No, these are all very smart uh, people, high-priced lawyers who are, have a financial interest in this project. Um, Ming Kwan Center for Community Action has pointed out that this council member has received more than $18,000 from the developers. Uh, the community board, uh, first vice chair and land use committee chair, has admitted to being paid by the developers. I mentioned before that the developers spent more than $1.7 million on just lobbying fees. There's a huge amount of money that is at stake here. And 
everyone who has spoken in favor of this project has a financial interest, has an economic interest in this project. And so these are not people who are just uh, spontaneously saying, oh yeah, support the special Celestial waterfront district. Um, I've been dreaming about this project. No, these are people who either work for the developers or are being paid by the developers or have some type of economic um, interest in the outcome of this project. And I think we as citizens, as taxpayers, we have to be really vigilant and to make sure that our land use uh, process is not being compromised. The integrity of our land use process is really critical here. Um, I, as someone who has been part of this community, as someone who's on the community board, uh, as someone who supports small businesses in this community, I cannot in good conscience support a process that has been compromised so much by developers and the money that they have uh, flooded into this process. It's just too much for me. Real quick, sorry, and before I turn it over to Maria to, to take us to however many more questions uh, she wants to ask before the end. Uh, when you say the people supporting it have an economic stake, do, are you including in that people in the community who say, we need jobs? You know, we, we are, you know, the, there's massive unemployment due to the pandemic. Yes, the, you know, the goal forever is not a, a lower paying retail job, but we need jobs in the community and this project can provide jobs. Is, are you including folks like that in, in that assessment? Well, who are these people saying that? I I've have said that we need jobs as well, mm -hmm. but I'm not supporting this project. Um, if you can name someone who is saying this, uh, I can respond in terms of whether they have um, some type of uh, compromised position or not. Um, uh, but in general, I think everyone in this community supports more jobs. Uh, the type of jobs I think are very important. And I think, um, you know, the type of model that we're trying to support here is also very important. Um, I think looking at the history of development uh, in the past uh, decade, the uh, market-driven um, uh, mandatory inclusionary housing policy that the mayor has been pushing is hollow. It's, it's a paper tiger. It hasn't delivered for our community. I mentioned before, uh, we have uh, more than 60% of a population that's rent burdened. Uh, I believe one in four, one in five of the uh, apartment units in our community are vacant. How is that addressing uh, affordability? It hasn't, it hasn't addressed in the past decade. What makes anyone think that this project is any different from all the other luxury developments that the city has facilitated? Well, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is it won't be building if the, the district is approved, it will not be adding many, many units of affordable housing. On the other hand, if it is not approved and the developer proceeds, there will be no affordable housing. So, I mean, it is a bit of a number game. I will say I live in Flushing. This is my community district. I drive by there all the time. And as a resident, I would love to see a cleaned up creek with waterfront access where I could just like take the bus and go with my kids and hang out. So, you know, the debate continues. I think, as I said, there's been tremendous coverage of this and a lot of writing from people on both sides in Gotham Gazette. So I encourage everybody who's interested in this issue to like explore more and read and, and think about it more deeply. Um, Mr. Cho, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Um, we'll continue the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you, Maria and Ben. Really appreciate the conversation.